0: Black Lives Matter. No justice, no peace. I can't breathe. Thousands of protesters have used these rallying cries across the nation to demand change following the death of George Floyd and other black men and women. As righteous outrage has mixed with calls for change, policymakers are feeling pressure to act. So what are politicians doing to fix systemic racism? How has Boston University responded to the crisis? What role have youth activists played in the movement and have their voices made a difference? All that and much more tonight on Black Lives and Self-Evident Truths, a BUTV 10 special report on racism in America. The debate over systemic racism in America has reached a fever pitch, stirring a movement that some estimates say is the biggest in our country's history. Now the big question is, what comes next? Welcome to Black Lives and Self-Evident Truths, a BU TV Ten special report on racism in America. I'm George Abin.
1: And I'm Salan Chaksha. With demonstrators putting out pressure on elected officials to act, we'll speak with Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, about healing the nation's racial divide and moving towards political change.
0: Then, what role do activists play in making the movement? We'll be joined by BU racial justice advocate Arshel Telemak and NAACP Regional President Juan Cofield to discuss how citizens can affect change in the social media age.
1: Also coming up, a closer look at Boston University's handling of the recent protests, including President Brown's statement, which has caused controversy among some students. We'll sit down with BU Student Government President, Oliver Poore, the President of BU's Black Student Union, Stephanie Tavares, and Dean of the BU School of Law, Angela Onwachi
0: willick but before we begin, let's remind ourselves of the history of systemic racism and the racial injustices that have plagued our nation for hundreds of years.
1: On January 1, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln freed all enslaved peoples living in the Confederacy with the Emancipation Proclamation. Despite that historic victory, Black Americans continued to face persecution across the nation. In 1909, author and civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois helped found the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, also known as the NAACP. By the mid 20th century, racial activism had made its way to college campuses, and in 1960, students in North Carolina formed the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in support of the civil rights movement. In 1963, The March on Washington became the largest demonstration in the country's history up to that point, culminating in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legendary I Have a Dream speech. Dr. King's advocacy, along with a growing civil rights movement that featured lunch counter sit-ins by Black student activists, bolstered the passage of the Civil Rights Act the following year. That law made it illegal to discriminate based on race and promoted integration of public spaces. The 1990s saw violent protests in Los Angeles that foreshadowed this year's unrest across the country. Video footage showing a black man, Rodney King, being brutally beaten by police officers and then the acquittal of those officers set off riots across the city. Police killings of many other black people, including children in the years since, have given rise to the Black Lives Matter movement, which has seen a surge of popular support following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis police custody.
0: This summer's racial justice protests have placed police forces under intense scrutiny, with some saying wholesale law enforcement reform is needed, while others advocate defunding the entire system. Our first guest tonight is the former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, the last Democrat to date to hold that title, and a former presidential candidate. He is now the founder of the Together Fund, Political Action Committee, which is supporting former Vice President Joe Biden and many Democratic congressional candidates across the country. Salon sat down with Governor Patrick to speak about what policymakers can do to change policing and end systemic racism.
1: Governor Duval Patrick, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So our first question, what can be done to prevent police officers from escalating situations to a fatal point when arresting and detaining individuals,
2: ooh, no small question. But the, I guess the simplest answer is to is to train for and emphasize de-escalation first. We seem to go to dominance and force first, uh, even when that uh, even when that doesn't seem seem necessary. So, as a, at, a, at a at a base level, it's it's placing de- de-escalation really at the top of the list of responses that we should expect of uh, modern policing.
1: Police officers definitely do wear many hats in today's America, from social worker to law enforcement officer. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: What roles are they well-equipped for, and what might be unfair to ask a police officer to do?
2: Well, that's a, you know, are they well equipped for, uh, let me put can I, if I can rephrase your question, Solange, respectfully, what should they be equipped for and what shouldn't they be equipped for? I mean, in my view, you know, we'd have, uh, we'd have adequate um, uh, funding and programming in the public schools. We'd have social services that uh, enable people to help themselves, families to be together. We'd have uh services that enabled um, people who were economically fragile uh, and vulnerable uh, to be able to um, house themselves and find training and, uh, uh, and work. And we would relieved so much of the chronic generational stress and trauma uh, in neighborhoods and not leaving that to um, uh, devolve into chaos and then involve the police. There are, you know, there are bad people who do bad things, um, and I do think that we need um, police who can respond uh, to, to danger, to violence, uh, to threats to, uh, uh, to human life and property. Um, but we need a range of tools and a range of, uh, of tool givers or tool bearers, um, uh, rather than just relying on, on police as we have in so many, so many urban neighborhoods in particular.
1: Congressional Democrats are notably calling for a dashboard cam on every police cruiser and a body camera on every police uniform. That would require further funding. How does that square with some Democratic calls to defund the police?
2: Well, you know, I suppose in in a literal sense, it doesn't. Um, But it goes back to the question you asked me earlier, what do I hear uh, when I hear, or what do I think of when I hear uh, defund the police? What I, what I hear and what I think of and what I want is that we think about the whole person and the whole community and not just uh, what we have uh, in the last you know several decades thought of policing. And that we make available, we as a uh, statewide, as a nationwide community, we make available the services uh, that help meet those needs and relieve some of the chronic uh, suffering and anxiety uh, that, uh, uh, that sometimes devolves into, uh, into criminal behavior. And frankly, that we reconsider some of the things we have criminalized, uh, like, uh, uh, like um, you know, nonviolent drug offenses, for example. So I, I, I get it, you know, that we're going to have to invest, but we're going to have to invest differently
1: where is the legal bar set right now for criminal intent from law enforcement officers? And to what extent do you believe it should be lowered?
2: Well, I think the, the, um, the problem with the current standard is that there's a tremendous amount of deference to an officer's so-called reasonable belief that he or she is in danger of um, uh, physical harm or death. And then the training uh, that is authorized behind that uh, reasonable belief, reasonable belief in many places, is that you can respond with deadly force, and that um, has been interpreted to mean you can empty uh, uh, your uh, all the ammunition in your in your firearm, even if you know one wounding shot uh, would be enough uh, uh, for a reasonable person to feel they had protected themselves, um, you can empty your pistol. And I think in some uh, in some service revolves that may be as many as 24 or 25 bullets. That seems to me like a, uh, uh, a license uh, for excess. I'm not looking to expose a bunch of civil servants to having their homes taken. But I do want there to be um, consequences that cause uh, Police officers to have to think hard uh, before they, um, before they empty their pistol into another uh, human being.
1: How would you deal with those police officers who falsify reports, who um, claim that the altercation went a different way than it did? Um, What would be the penalty for that?
2: You know, many years ago, I tried a case in Boston in federal court against um, two Boston police officers who had uh, harassed a black medical student, who was my client, um, in a situation with his girlfriend one night in Grove Hall. And um, they were required uh, by their rules to fill out, um, to prepare a statement in their own hand uh, about what happened and to make that a part of the record. And they were supposed to do that independent of each other um, and without consulting anybody else. And on the stand, when I was cross-examining them, I asked them about those uh, statements, each one of them. Um, And their statements were word for word the same. And still they testified under oath In a federal courtroom in front of a jury that that um, was a complete coincidence. Everyone in that room knew they were lying. Even the jury knew they were lying and still exonerated them. And there were no consequences for them from a disciplinary point of view. I think when an officer lies, there have to be immediate and severe consequences. And I think that we have to have uh, a register of the so-called bad cops, the chronically disciplined cops, um, who, it turns out, will sometimes just take that bad record and move on uh, to an assignment in a different department without anybody knowing about it uh, uh, um, or, uh, or being able to get information. Former
1: Vice President Biden has indicated that he will pick a female running mate. Senator Amy Klobuchar has pushed him to pick a female running mate of color. As someone who's actively working to get him elected and was in the race previously himself, who do you think Biden should seriously consider?
2: Well, you know, I've seen the names on the list uh, uh, and on the lists that have, been, uh, that have been written about and they are terrific names. I, you know, I have relationships with many of them as well. He's got a tough choice and I'm glad he has a tough choice because it reflects how much talent there is out there. And he may surprise us. You know, he may pick somebody who's not, I don't, I'm not hinting anything. I don't have any breaking news, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he may pick somebody who's not uh, already um, prominent in politics or already a celebrity politician. But I'll tell you some of the folks on that, uh, on the list I've seen, um, in fact, all of them, are really, really impressive public servants. And they would, uh, they would do us all proud, both as campaigners, um, but as, uh, as incoming vice presidents.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time, Governor.
2: Good to be with you, Solange. Thank you. Stay safe, okay?
1: You too. Okay. Youth activism and mobilization have powered many of the Black Lives Matter protests in the weeks following George Floyd's death. We spoke with two passionate advocates for change to discuss this movement and its implications.
0: Juan Cofield is the president of the New England Area Conference, the NAACP, as well as a member of the group's board of directors. Archelle Tolemach is a student activist at Boston University, where she also studies political science and public relations. Juan, Archelle, thank you both for joining us.
3: Thank you, pleased to be with you.
0: Arshel, Eurosa prominence at BU spearheading the opposition to controversial conservative commentator Ben Shapiro's lecture on campus last fall. How does that movement compare to what we've seen from the BU community over the past few weeks?
4: I think one of the really important things to note is that it's been a huge progression in activism for especially youth activism in the past years. Um, And I think at Boston University, we've seen a really unique example of that in that in the fall, we did have the Black BU movement mobilize against the the title of Ben Shapiro's speech, America Wasn't Built on slavery, it was built on freedom. So when we're thinking about how activism has evolved and how it continues to evolve, I think what we saw happen on campus in the fall is directly fueling what we're seeing happen now with student activism. And the conversations that start in the fall have been continuing on through this and people are really looking at their institutions and in our case at Boston University about what the administration can do better to better advocate for its students and make sure that incidents like Ben Shapiro coming to campus doesn't happen again, but also looking at how we can better support our students of color and our Black students on campus, especially in the wake of what's happening across the country right now.
0: And so, um, the next question, Juan. Um, in a movement as massive and as passionate as this one, how do you keep protesters disciplined, on message, and policy oriented?
3: Um, I- I- in part, I think there have been a number of people, probably the the majority, certainly the American population, who haven't believed or haven't wanted to believe uh, the issues and the problems uh, that the civil rights movement, the civil rights leaders have been talking about and have been pressing for. Uh, I I think uh, with... uh, George uh, Floyd, it was so vivid, it was so, the, 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 the lack of, 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 of humanity uh, was so vivid that it made people stop and think and reflect on all of the other things that the civil rights movement has been saying, and to see that it's continuing today that it has sparked a fire because of the, 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 the vivid presentation of the, the, the camera. I mean, we all know that that's nothing new, but is the advent of the cell phone with the camera that has made the difference. Uh, and it has put these issues in people's faces uh, and in front of their eyes, uh, in, in a way that had not been so visible and who had allowed people to make excuses and to disbelieve uh, what we had been saying for ages and ages.
0: And Juan, like you said, things are getting filmed, people are using the cameras on their phones, and that relates to social media activism. It's a fairly new phenomenon in racial justice work. So how has social media changed the way you work?
3: Oh, I, I, social media has played a uh, a very important uh, part of this as well, because once it was captured captured uh, on film, uh, it was spread across initially the country and everywhere and now worldwide in a way that it would have been much more difficult uh, if social media were not so prevalent uh, in our society today. Uh, it, has made, it has played a major role, and I'm busy trying to catch up with social media myself.
0: And to our shell, social media does have its downsides. It's shown strong organizing potential, but some users have stifled resource distribution online because of hashtag overuse. Given this paradox, realistically, how helpful is social media?
4: That's tricky because I think you're right that right now we're living in a really sensitive time with social media usage where People are logging on to Instagram and logging on to Twitter, and the first thing that you probably will see is a resource or a fact sheet about what's happening across the country with protests, with demonstrations, with petitions, and it's almost like you cannot avoid what's happening in the world. And on one side, that is, it's it's good, because there are a lot of people that haven't been engaged with these conversations, and this is entirely new to them. So um, with hashtag Blackout Tuesday that happened a few weeks ago, people. People took the time to share resources and black out their Instagram pages to dedicate a day to learning about what's going on in the world and how they can better support the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and that is a great way that social media can be used to mobilize people. But also on the flip side of that, Blackout Tuesday, you saw that it was also a little detrimental to the cause because there wasn't one focal point to look to for direction about how to appropriately black out Tuesday. So people would just post a black square on their Instagram feed and that took up so much space and there wasn't room for you to see what resources and information was being shared.
0: Thank you, Arshel. And before we close, I just want to ask quickly to both of you, how can students become involved if they aren't already? Juan, first.
3: I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) Um, uh, of the different types of of units within the NACP are college chapters uh, m- Most of the larger universities in the Boston area uh, Were charged with chapters were chartered on their campus at one period uh, Today There are few that are active. So they're dormant a real effort of my leadership in the New England Area Conference has been to reactivate youth units. Youth units are college chapters, high school chapters, and youth councils. We are today uh, actively involved with students at Northeastern University as they are seeking to to reactivate the chapter on their campus. and the New England Area Conference is very interested in reactivating the chapter at Boston University. Uh, It is a matter of finding the right college leaders.
0: And Arshel, last question. Um, Juan mentioned the NAACP at BU. Um, What are your thoughts about having that at our school?
4: I think that a student last year actually began the work to bring the NAACP chapter uh, or reignite that chapter on BU's campus. But now that I know Juan is really leading the charge on that, of course I'm going to reach out to you after this and start up conversations about how we can bring that to campus because I think the work that the NAACP has done in the 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 last I mean the last ten decades has been. Insurmountable to the achievement that we've had in civil rights. So I would love to continue that activism on campus.
3: We, we are, I'm sorry, we, we are looking forward to uh, having that discussion, reactivating the chapter on campus. Uh, I, there is an existing uh, chapter that was uh, chartered actually within the last year and a half, and that's UMass Boston the president of the Youth and College Division of the New England Area Conference just graduated from UMass Amherst. Uh, There is an active chapter at UMass Dartmouth. Uh, And as I indicated before, I think within a very short period of time, the chapter at Northeastern University will be reactivated. Thank you.
0: And yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this develops, but just want to thank you guys for joining me today. Obviously, I know you guys have busy schedules, and of course, best of luck to both of you and your continued activism. Boston University has been home to several renowned advocates of racial justice, including its best-known alumnus, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This year, BU created the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, headed up by leading anti-racism scholar Ibram X. Kende. But Boston University President Robert Brown and his administration faced sharp backlash from many in the school community for their response to the protests. We convened a panel of students and faculty to discuss whether BU has met the moment.
1: Here now are three important voices in the discussion of racial justice at BU. Oliver Poor, president of the BU student body, Stephanie Tavares, president of Emoja, BU's Black Student Union, and Angela Anwachi-Willick, dean of BU's Law School. Thank you all for joining us. Stephanie,
5: what did you think of the letters that President Brown sent to the school community following the death of George Floyd? I think that I shared the sentiment with a bunch of other students that the letter, um, well, the initial silence was unacceptable, and then the follow-up letter was disappointing in that, um, he didn't really address the concerns. Uh, he didn't really address what was what was happening um, in relation to George Floyd um, and racial injustice in America. And um, yeah, I think a lot of students were just disappointed that our university president um, you know, didn't take the initiative to really speak about the issues that are happening nationwide and that um, go into our campus as well, that happened on our campus as well. Oliver. How did you assess those letters?
6: I think overall, um, there was a lot of frustration as Stephanie uh, mentioned. I had reached out to my executive board and several different friends and colleagues within BU. I also reached out to a a close dean of mine and some faculty and asked them about their thoughts. And there was this frustration that the problem at hand was not spoken about enough and there was no action items listed that would come within the next couple of weeks. Um, and that's where Umoja, the BU student government and a hundred plus student organizations came together and just said, it's time It's time to create action ourselves.
1: Dean Anwachi-Willig, what did you make of President Brown's response?
7: I, I thought President Brown's response was sincere. I know I know that he um, is uh, very concerned about racism. What I could say about um, Boston University is I understand that students were, um, were not happy with the response and really wanted more wanted things like action items, but, um, I, uh, what I would say is that I, uh, BU obviously could always do more as any university could always do more. I think that we were, um, in part because of the um, president and Provost's commitment to these issues already doing a lot of the work that many places weren't doing. And so, um, um, you know, listing the action item that other institutions were doing, if you compare the action items that other institutions listed, we were already engaged in that kind of work um, and we're adding to that work now.
1: Stephanie, um, going off of Dean anwashi response, listing all of the actions BU has taken thus far to combat anti, um, to combat racism on our campus, um, and your experience as a student at BU and now president of Emoja. How would you assess BU's treatment of Black and Brown students?
5: I think that the experience of Black students really varies. So I don't, you know, I don't want to speak for you know the entire Black community, uh, but I think that there is, you know, BU is a great school. I will always say that. Um, I have a truly, I've had an amazing experience at BU, um, but uh, it's also important for us to recognize its faults. Um, and I think inclusion, inclusion. Um, for undergraduate students, at least, is, is difficult. Um, and the burden of like that inclusion aspect really is upon our club or our organization. Um, and there's very little institutional support um, to sustain that environment.
1: And Oliver, going off of all that Stephanie has said, what policies would you put in place as student body president to make strides in racial justice at BU?
6: So... This, this is something Stephanie and I discuss at least once or twice a day. Um, there, what needs to happen, in my opinion, um, there needs to be coalitions built for co- culture groups. There needs to be committees led by students with administrators and faculties on those committees led by the students. Because this, there's a community of 17,000 plus students here at Boston University. And the best way to hear them speak is to have them lead the room and tell the administrators and the professors what they're thinking and what's on their mind on the daily basis. Um, for example, in student government, we have Senate and pr- at each school, each uh, college within the university has an X amount of senators. There should be spots in Senate for different cultural groups, different backgrounds and Give them a voice to speak. UMOJA should have a seat on on our Senate. ASL, uh, uh, AS, uh, the Asian Student Union should have one. Uh, Alianza Latina should have one because this will give them an area to speak and this is where people can collaborate with each other and this is where they could work on ideas together.
1: How has the school of law worked towards taking steps especially in the area of racial justice, equity and inclusion to support black and brown students at the school?
7: Yeah, so, I mean, we, we, we really try to do a variety of things. Um, number one, we, we really try to work with our students on a variety of issues and we recognize too, and I will say that, um, I thought that Stephanie made a great point that recognizing that um, their first responsibility here is as students and we recognize it's an extra burden um, when they have to collaborate with us to be better and to make ourselves better as an institution, as a, as a place. And that is an extra burden that falls often on students of color um, when their peers majority peers get to focus on their work and their academics and so I start off by noting that um, and even when we do that we 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 do work with our um, students because they want to work with us and so I meet with um, the leaders of our various different affinity groups um, a couple of times every semester Um, we work with them on a variety of issues they've come to speak with our faculty about some of the more common um, microaggressions and issues that they face in the classroom and otherwise um, uh, they are partners with us in terms of thinking about recruitment and admissions so we, we can have a diverse class of students of color and, and each incoming class. They partner with us on faculty hiring as we work to uh, recruit um, a more diverse faculty. They meet with all the um, various candidates that we bring in. It's part of what we use in looking at at um, all the candidates. Of course, the university also includes record of inclusion and looking at every single candidate that comes in on campus, faculty candidate is is, is evaluated based on their
1: record of inclusion as well as other factors as well. Oliver and Stephanie, you two and your organization's 150 plus as you've noted, have worked to raise over $141,000 for social justice groups. And you've asked BU to match that donation. When asked if BU could match Umoja and the student government's donation, President Brown told the Daily Free Press that BU has a large enough endowment, but he believes that it would not be an appropriate use of tuition money. He explained, it's very hard for us as an institution to become a fund of funding, that we take dollars from you and from everyone and fund other people's causes no matter how noble they are. I committed personally to the fund because I think what they did was phenomenal and I told them so, but that's different. That's my money, not the university's. So Oliver, how would you respond to President Brown's explanation?
6: So Stephanie and I took notes from both the Daily Free Press article and their, their virtual um, interview. And we will be working together on a letter that we are going to send to President Brown and Provost Morrison, describing that we understand that they might not have the ability to, put, to match the $141,000 towards these three organizations that we raise money for because they're external. However, we would like to propose several different ideas, one of them being utilize those funds and invest them back into our own communities so we can continue to develop the communities. Thank you all
1: for joining us today and sharing your insights. We want to note that we invited several administrators and the Student Senate Chair to participate in this panel. Provost Jean Morrison, BU spokesperson Colin Riley and Senator Vincent D'Amato declined to comment, while President Brown and Dean of Students Ken Elmore did not respond to requests for comment. And that will conclude this episode of Black Lives and Self-Evident Truths, part one of our two-parts BU-TV10 special report on racism in America.
0: We'd like to thank our guests, Governor Deval Patrick, Arshel Telemach, Juan Cofield, Oliver Poor, Stephanie Tavares, and Dean Angela Unwachi Willig for their perspectives and insight.
1: On behalf of our entire cast and crew here at BUTV 10, I'm Salon Chaksha.
0: And I'm George Abana. Join us next Thursday night for episode two of Black Lives and Self-Evident Truths as we speak with more policymakers, including Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, on the fight to end systemic racism and discuss how the media's role in reporting on race is changing. Thank you for watching and stay safe.